Hey, good morning. It's good to see you today. Uh, by the way, didn't you enjoy Ryan and the Hub Band, the high school band? We have four weekend services here at New Spring. I've got to be part of all four, and they've all been awesome. And I appreciate the Hub and the great work they're doing. Mike and Melody, you guys are doing an awesome job. And again, you know, if there's a place out there, if you're a high schooler, if you've never been part of the Hub yet, why don't you stop by and say hello and meet them and learn the awesome opportunities that are part of the Hub ministry. Uh, but just as a flight plan for us at New Spring as we get ready for the coming weeks, in two weeks, we start a brand new series called DNA. It's all about New Spring, what, what we are, what God has done, what we could become, and your part in it. So that, that'll be a fun series. And then September 10th and 11th starts the series of the decade. And I mean that. I'm telling you, it's the series of the decade. It's called Intensive Care. If you've never been through a season in your life where you needed intensive care from God, you will go through it sometime. And so intensive care is healing, direction, and comfort when life leaves you bruised, broken, and bleeding. And it's going to be five awesome weeks. And whatever you got to do to get here or to watch it online or whatever, you want to be part of intensive care. It's the series of the decade. So, uh, and I would pass a polygraph on that. So uh, just want you to know that. Right now, of course, we're in a series called Chronic. And this is my first opportunity to bring one of the talks from the series. Jonathan's brought two awesome talks about chronic neediness and chronic vengeance. Chronic, is, if you think about it, it's, it's usually about something bad. For instance, we don't talk to a friend at Starbucks and say, you know, I'm just dealing with chronic happiness right now. I, I don't know what's going on. It just keeps coming back to me. You know, I just keep getting happy or I, I'm just dealing with chronic peace right now. It's the strangest thing. Just, you know, we don't talk about that. Chronic is about something bad. And it's about a particular kind of bad. It's a kind of bad that grinds. It doesn't go away. You know, your God and my God is very merciful. If you think about the, the way he's made our world work, most of the time, bad comes and it goes. Pain comes and it goes. God has made our bodies so that most of the time they heal. And so if you've got a cold, it's bad but it goes away. If you've got the flu, it's bad, but it goes away. Diseases come and they go. But if you've ever dealt with chronic pain or chronic fatigue or chronic depression, you know that what really grinds on you is that you've got something bad and unlike other things that go away, it doesn't go away. It's there day in and day out. And my heart goes out to you who deal with chronic pain especially. I've only dealt with it one season in my life. The year we were moving out here in 99, I had a herniated disc in my lower back. I'd never experienced anything like that before. And it got so bad that I couldn't sit, I couldn't stand, I couldn't lie down. I can remember at 3 o'clock in the morning walking through my neighborhood trying to get some kind of relief. And here's what I, I understand from that, those 10 months that I spent with chronic pain. I understand that it has an erosive quality. There's a quality that just beats you down. And so my heart goes out to you if you deal with any of these chronicle physical, chronic physical situations. But you know, of course, that we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about the fact that there are some things that can chronically affect you in the spiritual realm or, or in your personality realm. Jonathan talked to you about chronic neediness and how it causes us to build relationships and latch on to harmful relationships and destroy the relationships that we have. He talked about chronic vengeance, how that we can have the cycle of getting even that destroys relationships and destroys opportunities. Today, I'm going to come at you from a different place, 
And I'm going to talk about a chronic issue. And I know that a lot of you drive a long way to come to New Springs. Some of you drive from, a lot of you drive from Hutch. A lot of you drive from Mound Ridge and McPherson and Salina. So I know you drove a long way, many of you, to be here today. <clears throat> and as soon as you hear my topic, you may say, I drove 50 miles to hear Mark talk about that. But I'd like for you to hang with me for a moment because the issue is bigger than we tend to think it is. I want to talk to you about chronic boredom, chronic boredom. You know, a lot of us have the idea that boredom, the idea of boredom is just sitting in a chair and not knowing what to do with the arms folded, you know. But boredom is a lot bigger than that. And, and I had some thoughts about it, but I came across a definition in a book that said it for me better than anything else I could possibly say. Judge Robert Bork wrote what I think is a groundbreaking book. It was a clarion call to the United States called Slouching Toward Gomorrah several years ago. And in Slouching Toward Gomorrah, Judge Bork talked about boredom. And I want to read it to you, and I'm going to emphasize certain words. Because I think when, it, when we get through with this, we're going to understand a lot more about where boredom comes from, why we deal with it, and the nature of it that is broader than we tend to think at first. Affluence brings with it boredom. Of itself, he's talking about affluence, it offers little but the ability to consume. And a life centered on consumption will appear and be devoid of meaning. Persons so afflicted will seek sensation as a palliative. Palliative, or pal it's something that alleviates the symptoms for a moment, but then it never cures. And that, speaking of palliatives, today's culture offers in abundance. Now, just to go over that one more time, let's, let's go through the nature of boredom. Affluence brings it. For instance, you have brothers and sisters today in parts of Africa where genocide is taking place. They're not bored. When they go to worship today, they don't know if they're going to live until they get home. There are, there are places in our world where you have brothers and sisters who do not know where their next meal is coming from. They are not bored. You have brothers and sisters in Haiti who are t still trying to recover from that atrocious earthquake that they had. I remember seeing one of the most heart-touching things I've ever seen in my life back when the earthquake happened. There were parents who weren't even able to bury their children. They just had to bring them to be disposed. And I remember a mother who had just disposed of the bodies of her two children holding on to her Bible to Psalm 46, where the Bible says, even if the earth shakes, God is still God. She's not bored. See, the reason we deal with boredom in America, and, and I wasn't sure about this until I began to research it, I kind of figured it was the case, but once I researched it, I discovered that Americans are the most bored people even in the Western world. Affluence brings it. And what is boredom? It isn't just sitting in a chair with your arms folded or surfing the net, not knowing what to look for. Boredom is life without meaning. It's a, an hour without meaning. It's a day without meaning. It's a month or a year or a whole lifetime without purpose. See, God has created us with a desire to find meaning, for there to be some reason. This is a reason why I'm so glad I'm not an, an atheist, although, you know, if you're here today and, you, and, you, and you're not a believer in God, I don't, I don't mean that to take a shot at you. I, I guess I'm just saying I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm not an atheist because if we're here by accident, then there's no such thing as purpose. Let us be honest about that. 
if, if we're here by natural purposes, whatever natural means to you, but if we're here without any kind of design, then life is meaningless. God has created us for the thirst for purpose. We have something here called Starting Point, which is a, a, it's, it's a 10-week session where you have an opportunity to discuss the biggest questions of life, and you get to ask questions in a sort of living room format. We have a, we've had over 2,000 people here at New Spring go through Starting Point. And, and in Starting Point, if you've been through it or if you've led a group, you know that one, in one of the early sessions in Starting Point, there's sort of this discussion question that everybody kind of answers, and that is, if you were able to sit down with God and talk to God and ask him any question you would like to ask him, what would you ask God? Do you know what the overwhelming question is that's in starting point? People say, if I could talk to God, I would ask him this. Overwhelmingly, what is my purpose? What's the reason I'm here? See, this is the reason why it's really important that we talk about boredom, because boredom strikes at the very heart of who you are. Boredom is life without meaning. It's an hour with, I don't know what to do with my, I don't even know why I'm here. And by the way, I'm not saying, you know, recreation is not wrong. Recreation is a purpose. Fun is a purpose. But I'm saying to us all today, boredom is important because, as Judge Bork says, affluence brings it, so we're certainly subject to it. Even though we, we think we're not rich, we are by the world standards. Affluence brings it. What does it bring? It brings life without meaning. What do bored people do? He said, bored people seek sensation. In other words, if I'm bored and I've got life without meaning, I've got to find something that makes me feel better. I've got to find something as a palliative, something that will cure my pain of having to live a life that doesn't have any meaning, even though it's not really going to cure my problem. I can't remember the exact quote, but many years ago I read about a famous cartoonist who put a gun to his head and blew himself away. And in his suicide note, he said he was just tired of trying to find something to keep himself occupied for 16 hours every day. Boredom is powerful in our lives. It causes us to do things. It causes us to seek sensations. Some of us, I know this firsthand, eat too much because we're bored. I've lost 5,000 pounds in my lifetime. <laughs> in seeking sensation to deal with boredom, there are people that acquire possessions. Just, I'm bored, what do I do? Let's go shopping. Get the plastic out. We buy stuff with money we don't have, stuff we don't even need. Stuff that's going to be in the back of our closet until we have the greatest transfer of wealth that Americans have, a garage sale. <laughs> it causes some of us to abuse substances. We, we drink or we use drugs because we're bored. Or get into unhealthy relationships. How many people got into an unhealthy relationship with somebody that was not a good match, that was trouble all the time? Everybody around them said, don't get with him. He's trouble. Don't get with her. She's trouble. But, but. We did. Why? We're bored. Life without meaning. Well, how do we deal with it? Well, I could be a smart aleck and just say, wait till you have a crisis because a crisis will knock it out of you. Or me. But that's not a good answer. Fortunately for us, there is a whole book of the Bible devoted to the subject of boredom. It's a book every once in a while. Somebody will quote from this book, and, and they'll quote it like it's a word from God. And I'm thinking, you know what? You really should not build too much of your life out of the book of Ecclesiastes because it's the journal of a very screwed up man. 
And one thing I love about God is God hangs it on the line. You know, God, God doesn't try to hide the foibles and the failures of its famous men and women. And, and in this particular case, you have one of the most famous men in the Bible, but he's bored out of his brains, and he's journaling. And God allowed this book to be in your Bible. And I'm going to do something today that might not be smart. I'm going to try to walk you through the book. I don't know if this is a sermon or not, but I want you to feel the transition of this book because when you and I get through, I think if we'll pay attention, we'll be able to deal pretty well with life without meaning. Well, let me introduce you to the author. His name is Solomon. Solomon is the third king of Israel, and he was fortunate to be king during the glory days of Israel. He had a charmed reign. No other king in the Bible, probably no other king in history of the world, has ever had as much prosperity and as much blessing and as much ease as Solomon had in all the years that he was king. Solomon's father was David, of the David and Goliath fame. David was king for many years, and he was beloved by God. Now, I'm going to go to a, a sensitive place right now, and I want to be cautious, but I want to tell you what I think about God's mercy sometimes. I really believe that God allows us to have challenges in our lives sometimes so that we won't get bored and not being, you know, and if we got bored, of course, we would do dangerous things. King David got bored one time in his life. He was up on the palace, the roof of his palace. He didn't know what to do with himself. It was the middle of the afternoon. He was chilling, bored, looked over, saw his next door neighbor naked, called for her, slept with her, got her pregnant to cover it up. He had her military husband murdered, married the woman. And so that's what happened to David when he got bored, and he never had an easy day the rest of his life. So I really believe this, that when you look in David's life, one of the blessings that God allowed David to experience was he allowed him to experience challenges. Um, this is an old story. I, I personally love cod. It's my favorite fish. And, and so I was reading one time about how the cod was shipped in the early days of the 20th century. And what they would do, they would ship cod by rail uh, across the country to places that didn't, didn't have access to cod. And the only way they could ship the fish so that it would still be good was to ship the fish alive in a huge tank. But the cod would just lie around in this tank as they were shipped across the country. And when they arrived, the meat was mushy, it wasn't any good, and it lost its flavor, and they couldn't figure out what to do. Somebody had the bright idea that they would drop a couple of catfish in the tank because catfish are the natural predator of cod, and the catfish would cha chase those cod all the way around the tank, all the way around the country, and when they got to their destination, they were still good. What I discovered is God puts catfish in my tank. <laughs> but in, Solomon, there, in Solomon's life, there really weren't any catfish. He got to live a life that you and I could only dream about. Let me tell you a little bit about when Solomon became king. He was probably about 20 years old when David, his dad, passed. See, David, David had had Solomon for a son when David was later in life. I mentioned a moment ago that David slept with a woman, got her pregnant, had her husband killed. David married her. Her name was Bathsheba. Their first baby died. You know that story probably if you've read it in the Bible. Their second baby was Solomon. So I'm guessing that Solomon was born when David was about 50. And so he's just a young man when David died and Solomon became king. And he woke up one day and he looked at what had happened. He thought, man, there was my dad. My dad was around Mount Rushmore legend. And here I am. I'm a 20-year-old kid. I don't know how to be. Solomon said it this way, and I love this. He said, I don't even know how to go into a room and leave a room. 
And one night he had a dream, and in the dream, God appeared to him in the dream, and he said, Solomon, ask for whatever you want. And Solomon said, Lord, I'd just like to know how to do things. I'd like to know how to be wise. I've got so many decisions that I've got to make, and I don't know how to make them. Give me the tools to make these decisions. And it so excited God that Solomon was asking for wisdom instead of the death of his enemies or instead of wealth that God said to Solomon, I'm going to make you the wisest man in the world, and I'm going to give you all the stuff you didn't ask for. And he did. When you read the life of Solomon, I think he had gold in the hundreds of millions of dollars by the current price of gold. I really think he had gold in the trillions. <laughs> See, the other countries didn't attack him. They brought him gold just to keep him happy. I mean, Solomon would have kings visit him from all over the world, and when they came, they would bring thousands of pounds of gold and give it to him. So here was the wealthiest guy that ever lived. I mean, I want you to look at what he said about himself in two, chapter Ecclesiastes 2, verse 9. He says three things about himself that just make him astounding. Number one, he said, I was greater than all who'd lived before me. I was the greatest. Number two, anything I wanted, I'd take. I denied myself no pleasure. Now think about how life would be with those three things. You're greater than anybody else. You buy anything you want. And any, any craving your body has, you instantly give into it. See, here's the deal. I'm talking to some of you who are bored today, and you're just thinking a little bit of that would make you happy. You know, if, if I just had one more sex partner, I'd be happy. If I just had that car, I'd be happy. If I, just, if I could go to work and feel like I was as good as everybody else, I'd be happy. Solomon said, I was greater than everybody else. I bought anything I wanted, and I gave in to every sensation. Well, I'd work for you, Solomon. Verse 11, but as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. What, what was it that Judge Bork said that boredom was? It's life without meaning. And so here Solomon said, I, I, I'm bigger than anybody else. I got all this stuff, but I'm not happy. So he did something that you and I could never do. He decided to search. Look at Ecclesiastes 1, verse 13. I devoted myself to search for understanding. Now, you and I are never going to have the opportunity that Solomon had, because for one thing, he had unlimited money. He could break any rule because he was king, and instantly, whatever he wanted would be his. You and I don't have that opportunity. We don't have unlimited money. We can't do anything we want to do. Or we'll go to jail. We can't do that. So let's look at the journal of a guy who could try anything. So he said, I'm bored. I don't know what to do with my life. I got all this stuff, so I'm just going to like focus on something that will make me happy. So in chapter 2, verse 2, he said, let's try pleasure. I'm not having enough fun. I'm working too hard. I need to have a good time. Pleasure. He said, I found it was meaningless. Chapter 2, verse 3, after much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. Solomon said, my problem is I'm too sober. <laughs> I'm going to get drunk. I mean, he was so sarcastic, he said, I, I think that's the only, only fun people get out of life. So he said, I'm just going to get high. I, I'm going to use drugs. I'm going to drink. And Solomon said, oh, that's madness. So with all the channels, he decided to watch the HGTV channel, chapter 2, verse 4. He said, I tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and planting beautiful vineyards. Solomon said, oh, I know what the deal is. You know, I tried the fun, that didn't make me happy, and I tried the drinking, and that just got me crazy. I guess what I'm going to do now is I'm going to build myself beautiful homes. I'm going to redo my bathroom. I'm going to build, vi plant vineyards, landscaping. 
kept, he, he was bored with that. Chapter 2, verse 7, I bought slaves. I got other people to do my work for me. Chapter 2, verse 8, in what has to be the greatest understatement of the Bible, I collected great sums of silver and gold. He said, it was money. I'm going to get money, and money's going to make me happy. It didn't, didn't cure the boredom. Chapter 2, verse 8, I heard wonderful singers. Our modern-day equivalent would be entertainment. Wow, we live in an entertainment culture, don't we? Man, how big are flat screens going to get? I remember when 50-inch flat screen was a big flat screen. Then there's 60 inches and 70 inches. Sooner or later, they're going to build a flat screen that's going to be so big you can't get it in your house. We just got to have a bigger one, you know? And, and here's the deal. You, I don't know, ladies, you may not feel this way, but guys, you got 600 channels and nothing on. But ladies, they'll go through all 600 trying to find something, won't they? Maybe twice. Solomon said, I, I know what it is, it's entertainment. And see, here we are. We are the most entertained generation in the world. We can be entertained with our computers. We can be entertained on our phones or our iPads. We've got entertainment everywhere. We're up to here in entertainment. Affluence brings boredom. And yet we can't find anything. We can't, you know, keep searching for stuff. We never can really find that site that we need to find. Well, Solomon said, I know what the deal is. I mean, I can't find, I can't get no satisfaction. You know, <laughs> I tried the money, I tried the houses, I tried the drugs, I tried, you know, entertainment. Solomon just said, I know what I need. Are you ready for this 21st century America? Solomon said, I need more sex. And I need sex anytime, anyway, anywhere. So, in chapter 2, verse 8, he said, he had many beautiful concubines. Now, Solomon, when it came to women, went to the extreme. And I know this is going to freak you out. It freaks me out when I read this in the Bible. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Not cucumber vines, 700 uh, wives, 300 concubines. <laughs> we understand what a wife is. That's part of our culture. But a concubine, let's just keep it real here. A concubine was a woman who was there for his pleasure anytime, anyway, anywhere. And Solomon had 300. And he's just saying, I'm going to have more sex. I remember a pastor who was kind of a chauvinist who said this many years ago. He said, with a thousand women, Solomon could be sure that one would be in a good mood when he got home. <laughs> but I doubt it. Not with 999 others. That's just not a good circumstance. That's not a good situation. So, that cured it, right? I mean, here's a guy who says, I'm bored. I don't know what to do, but I got unlimited money. I got unlimited resources. I'm the king. It's good to be king. I can do anything I want to do. So, I tried it all. I'm going to find what it is that turns the crank that gives meaning to my life. Sex, money, power, houses, possessions. What a... <laughs> What a reality show this would make. Wouldn't that be something? What if you just tune this in every week and a guy's searching for meaning, trying it all? Have to be on cable, I guess. I want you to see two statements. After that search, in chapter 2, verse 17, he said, I came to hate life. And one verse later, he said, I came to hate my job. You and I are part of the most affluent culture 
who's ever lived in history. Our wealth is insane. You say, Mark, I'm not like Solomon. Are you kidding me? You're so much richer than Solomon, even though he was the richest man who lived in the world. Do you realize that Solomon never even had a car? You say, well, he had chariots. Yeah, you'll trade your car for a chariot. I mean, you know, he didn't even have a 20-year-old Ford Taurus. He never had a car. He never went, you know, he, ne he never went to Freddy's. He, he, he didn't know what it was like to have frozen you know, ice cream. I mean, he didn't know what any of those things were like. I'm going to tell you, we are the richest people in the world. He had no computer. He had no flat screen. He never saw an NFL game. He just never had wealth like you and I have. And yet I run into so many Americans who basically, when they get right down to it, they say, I hate my life. And how many times do I hear this one? I hate my job. Hey, I got to tell you something, and I don't, I don't mean to be offensive today. But in this economy, if you have a job, you better not hate your job. It's your job to love your job. You know what? You should not. You say, so, well, I go to work and no, but nothing there makes me happy. Your job is to carry your happiness in your lunch bag. If you're blessed with a job, if you're blessed with a paycheck, if you're blessed with a place to go to work, you should be thankful, number one, that God has given you the strength to work, and number two, that God has given you employment. And if you don't like what you're doing, then pray that God will open a door that will lead you into what you want to do. But go loving it. But see, that's the problem. We hate our lives sometimes, and we hate our jobs because we're bored. See, what happens is hating our life and hating our job becomes symptoms of a life without purpose, a life without meaning. Well, Solomon built it. He built Utopia. He built Shangri-La. He built Xanadu. And money and power had allowed him to insulate himself from things that you and I worry about. For instance, he never had to worry about where his next meal was coming from. He didn't have to worry about how he was, you know, if he could have sex. He didn't have to worry about making payroll. The stuff that you and I worry about, he never had to worry about. And yet he said he hated his life. Now here, guys, is where I'm going to have to ask for your indulgence. Because I want to ask the question, why? Why would a guy who had all the sex he wanted, all the money he wanted, anything he wanted for a house, why would a guy with all those possessions, why would he be bored and say he hated life? Are you ready? We're just going to read through some scriptures. Here's why Solomon said, this is, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, here's why he said he hated life with all that stuff. What is wrong cannot be made right. What's missing can't be recovered. Solomon says, it's a broken world, and I don't know how to fix it. In chapter 2, he says, I came to hate all my hard work here on earth, for I must leave it to others, everything I've earned, and who can tell whether my successes will be wise or foolish, yet they'll control everything I've gained. Solomon said, I've gained all this stuff, but it just makes me miserable, because I don't know if my son will be a jerk, or he'll, and he was a jerk. Uh, Solomon said, I just got to leave it all behind. Chapter 3, verse 11, God made everything beautiful in itself and in its time, but he's left us here in the dark so we can never know what God is up to, whether he's coming or going. I've decided there's nothing better to do than to go ahead and have a good time and get the most we can get out of life. See why it's good not to build your life on Ecclesiastes, at least till you get to the end, the end of it. Chapter 3, verse 21, nobody knows for sure that the human spirit rises to heaven and that the animal spirit sinks into the earth. So I made up my mind there's nothing better for us men and women than to have a good time in whatever we do. That's our lot. Who knows if there's anything else to life? Next, he said, I turned my attention to all the outrageous violence that takes place in the planet, the tears of the victims, no one to comfort them. Chapter 8, verse 9, I thought deeply about all that goes on here under the sun where people have the power to hurt each other. 
I've seen wicked people buried with honor, yet they were the very ones who frequented the temple or went to church. And they are now praised in the same city where they committed their crimes. Chapter 5, verse 11, the more loot you get, the more looters show up. Chapter 7, verse 23, I like this one. Because Solomon, you can almost see the sanctimonious, he's like talking about his search. I tested everything in my search for wisdom. I set out to be wise, but it was beyond me, far beyond me, and deep, and so deep. Does anyone ever find it? I concentrated with all my might, studying and exploring and seeking wisdom, the meaning of life. I also wanted to identify evil, stupidity, foolishness, and craziness. One discovery. I'm just like waiting to think, what is the one discovery that you've made? Are you kidding me? You have unlimited money. You got power to do anything you want to do. You make this complicated search. And you got one discovery. A woman can be a bitter pill to swallow. Well, you want to say to him, maybe if you'd not had a thousand, maybe you just found one woman that you loved who loved you. Do you understand what's going on here? I mean, how do you connect these two parts of the book? The first part of the book where Solomon says, I tried all this stuff and it didn't make me happy. And then he gets over here and he's whining about everything where he's saying, look, the world's broken and, and people hurt people. And why do people suffer violence? And why do bad people have it good and good people have it bad? And I don't understand. I got all these women. I don't have any relationship with anyone that makes me happy. I'm about to pull it all together for us. Stuff will not make you happy. Sex will not give your life purpose. Money will not give you definition. Because when you acquire those things, as we affluent people do in America, what we discover is although there are certainties, we don't have to worry where lunch is coming from, Although there are certainties, there are so many uncertainties. And what we discover is our stuff mocks us because with all the stuff we have, it cannot guarantee a healthy marriage. It cannot guarantee us a healthy relationship with our kids. It cannot guarantee us happiness on the inside. Stuff and junk and booze and drugs, they just don't make us. Could be right about now somebody's wrestling with something. You're saying, Mark, I don't have a hard time understanding something. You said Solomon asked God for wisdom. He seems like the dumbest guy in the room. Well, it's one thing to have God's wisdom. It's something else to act on it. But thankfully, toward the end of his search, as you get into chapters 11 and 12, Solomon begins to dial it in and realize this is great. He realized where he went wrong. There's an old story about a mother, an overprotective mother who went into the schoolroom on the first day of school and said, look, my kid is really difficult to handle, but I've never really disciplined him. So she said, if he acts up, just slap the kid next to him. It'll scare him so bad he'll straighten up. Now, I don't know what that story means, and it's very politically incorrect, but I tell you sometimes, every once in a while, when I see life slap the person next to me, it causes me to straighten up. Because <laughs> I'm thinking, what can I learn here? See, here's the deal. I, I don't have to screw up like, this is a great thing about the Bible. The Bible says these stories are here for our examples. In other words, God put them here so we can learn something. So if I see Solomon waste his life, I want to look at what he learned and say to myself, how can I not waste my life? 
Let me show you three things, and I promise you it'll be through, because this is where Solomon gets it. Chapter 11, verse 1, be generous. Invest in acts of charity. Charity yields high returns. Don't hoard your goods. Spread them around. Be a blessing to others. And with this cheerful note, this could be your last night. Let me tell you about something that happened after Solomon died. This, is, this, is, this freaks me out. When Solomon died, his son, as I told you, who was a jerk, his name was Rehoboam. Rehoboam was a young man. He called in his father's advisors to ask him how he should act as king. And his advisors, his, his, these, these are guys that advised his dad, very smart men. The advisors, the older guys said to Rehoboam, your dad levied huge taxes on the people, unfair taxes, lower the taxes. I want to think... Are you kidding me? Why on earth would Solomon raise taxes on the people? I mean, he got tons of gold. See, what he did, he, he figured that was all his, and he levied huge taxes on the people so that he could take care of all of his stuff. What if he had shared? What if Solomon had looked all that gold and said, hey, you know what, that's not for me, that's for... That's for my people. What if he had found people who were hurting and having a difficult time? You know, here's the deal. What if instead of like trying to sleep with as many women as he could sleep with, what if he went looking around for people that were having a hard time and said, you know what, God has been so good to me. I'm going to try to figure out how I can be an asset and how I can help somebody who's having a difficult time. I'm going to look at people who can't pay their bills, and I'm going to help them pay their bills. I mean, I got all this gold. God must have given it to me for a reason. It's not just meant for my conspicuous consumption. Some of us are bored today, and we've got so much stuff. We bought so much junk we don't need. We bought the latest technological gadget when the one that we had three generations ago would do more tasks than we're doing now. Has it ever crossed our mind that God didn't just allow us to have all these resources for ourselves, that he meant for us to do great things in the world, that we need to do great things for his kingdom, we need to do great things for people who are hurting, people who are less fortunate for us. I mean, I, I don't want to be confrontational, it's not my nature, but I, I think this, this, this message just sort of reaches out and grabs you and me by the shoulders and shakes us a little bit and says, wake up, it's not about us. That's the reason why we're so bored. We're living lives without meaning because somehow we got the idea it was all about us and it was all about getting the next... Gadget, it's all about sleeping with the next person. It's all, about, it's all about building the next house or getting the next car. It's stuff that would never make us happy. Number two, in chapter 12, verse 1, he said, Don't let the excitement of youth cause you to forget your creator. Honor, the word honor there means value. Value him in your youth before you get old. Hey, I could be wrong about this. I promise you if I'm wrong, I'll apologize to Solomon in your presence when we get there to heaven. I'm going to tell you what I think Solomon thought. You ready for this? I think Solomon looked at having fun and sleeping around and doing drugs and getting high and getting stuff for himself. And I think he said to himself, that's fun. And I'm going to do that while I'm young. And when I get old, I'm going to think about God. I want to have my fun, and then I'm going to think about God. And he woke up one day to an awful realization. He realized he had wasted the good part of his life because he said, I get it now. 
It's all about valuing God. It's not about me getting what I want in conspicuous consumption. It's about me giving God his proper place in my life. But the problem is I don't feel good anymore. And I don't have the energy to give that I had at one time. And I don't have the time to give that I had at one point. Here I am. I'm an old man and I don't feel good. And I'm just now figuring it out. I went to see my grandfather with my dad just a couple days before my grandfather passed. We went into the hospital there in Barnett, Texas, and I can remember my grand, grandfather being hooked up to the IV, and he knew he didn't have much time left, and he saw my dad, who was the oldest of his nine kids. <laughs> I've heard my, he was very young when my dad was born, and I've heard him say so many times, this is my son Winford, he and I grew up together. <laughs> but I looked at my grandfather as he looked with tear-filled eyes at my dad, and called him by his first name, and he said, Winfred. I've just now learned how to live, and now it's time to die. Hey, you feel good? You got time? You got energy? It's time to honor God. And I'm not talking about giving God just an hour on the weekend. I'm talking about day by day, honoring God, valuing God, putting God first in your life. Because here's the deal, if you live for yourself, you will mess your life up so bad and you'll get to the end and finally figure it out and say, now I know what it's all about. It's about valuing God, but it's too late because I don't feel good anymore. And then this, and I'm through. Chapter 12, verse 13, well, that's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commandments. Now let me... Could, could I take that out of biblical terminology and jargon, and could I put it in 21st century American lingo? It's this. Solomon's saying, I finally figured it out. It is about me living for God, not me living for myself. I don't want to make this personal, and I know I'm in overtime. Sorry about that. But... Uh, I really believe you make sometimes the biggest decisions of your life when you're in junior high or high school. I made the biggest decision of my life after accepting Jesus and marrying Mary Alice. I made the biggest decision of my life when I was 16 years old. I was junior in high school. And my, my goal in life was to, I honestly, I wanted to be an attorney. I wanted to go either into broadcast journalism or politics. I wanted some of what Solomon got. I'll be honest with you, especially money and power. And when I was 16 years old, God did the most extraordinary thing. You know, a lot of times I'll speak in seminaries and colleges, and young people will come up to me, young students will come up to me, and they'll say, Mark, how can I find God's will for my life? And I never really know how to answer that because, see, I knew God's will for my life very clearly. I just didn't want to do it. And God let me know what he wanted me to do is exactly what I'm doing, that he wanted me to be a pastor. And I didn't want to be a pastor. And I fought God for a long time because I said, I don't want to do, because here's the deal. <laughs> what God wanted me to do looked boring. What I wanted to do looked exciting. Now, what I've learned about dealing with God and his will is that <clears throat> God is not like a bolt of lightning. God is like a huge boulder. You can push all you want, but he's not going to move. And he kept after me, and I remember, <laughs> and I could tell you a long story, and I won't because we're in overtime. I remember in the spring of my junior year, I said, God, I will do whatever you want me to do. 
And I know it sounds crazy, but instantly doors begin to open. I began to speak at conferences when I was 16 years old. And I started pastoring at 20. And guys, I got to tell you this. If I had done what I wanted to do, I would be the most bored human being on the planet. I know, because I pastored a Baptist church for many years. I got more politics than I would ever want. <laughs> and I get more broadcasting sometimes than I want. But I got to tell you this. I am 54 years old. I've been 34 years in the ministry, 26 years in the spring. And I got to tell you that I have never been bored following God. Scared, yes. I got to tell you, leading this church, leading this church for 26 years, I mean, we have taken risk. We are a risk-taking church. Our motto is, if it's not broke, break it. I mean, I keep telling Mary Alice, when I die, I know what I want you to put on my tombstone. Once again, he's in over his head. <laughs> I have never been bored following God, and I've never had to ask, what's my purpose? I want to please him, and sometimes I'm concerned that I'm not pleasing him, but I've never been bored. Rich? No. Famous? Who cares about that? But I've never been bored. And you know what? I'm not, it's not because I'm a pastor. It's just that's God's particular will for my life. Whatever God's particular will is for your life, if you're in God's will, you won't be bored because you're not living for yourself. You're living for him. And Solomon said, I figured it out. Too old, but I figured it out. It's valuing God. It's living for him. Guys, thanks for letting me go into overtime. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what we've learned today. And I pray you'll just grab us by the shoulders. A lot of us, Lord, have stuff and money, and we're just spending it on ourselves. Help us to look around and find places to share. And, oh, God, help us to value you when we still feel good. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's keep praying, please. Could be that here, I, I, I don't ever want you to leave at New Spring without offering you an opportunity to begin a relationship with God. You say, Mark, how do I have a personal relationship with God? Do I join your church? I love New Spring. But that won't do it. You say, I'm a pretty good person. I assure you that won't do it because you have to be perfect. And you know what I always say, I can't be perfect for 30 minutes. You say, well, Mark, is it because I'm Baptist or Catholic or Buddhist? Or No. no. Did you know that having a relationship with God, which involves forgiveness and eternal life, it is a gift? See, that, that's why Christians celebrate the cross. Some of you are wearing a cross right now. Some of you have it tattooed on you. Why, why the cross? Because the cross says that this is the place where Jesus paid for your relationship with God so that God could offer it to you as a gift. Something you can never earn, he offers as a gift. The most priceless possession in the world, forgiveness, heaven, God in your life, is open to anyone who will simply by faith believe on Jesus and ask for it. Would you be open today to asking God to forgive you and to save you through Jesus Christ. If you're willing to believe Jesus died for you, and if you're willing to believe that he arose, he rose from the grave to corroborate who he really is, and if you'll invite him in, he'll come in, he'll save you, he'll forgive you. Let's do it. If you're here today and you're ready for that, I'm going to pray a prayer with you, and I'm going to pray it slowly because I want you to be able to think about the words. It's not what you say, it's what you mean that matters. 
So I'll say these lines slowly. You can decide whether you mean them or not. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I can't undo my sin, and I can't be perfect. But I believe you love me anyway with an unconditional love. A love that put your son Jesus on the cross. I believe his blood was a currency that paid for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. And today, I commit my life to Jesus. And I ask you to make me your child. In Jesus' name.